Imagine visiting a tribal village on a tiny remote island in the South Pacific. The villagers are extremely primitive people, and they learn that you come from a land where there are bridges that are built across bay areas. They've made their way across the bay by their island in canoes, but they've heard that there's actually bridges you can walk across. And they tell you that a great king over all our islands has commanded us to start building a bridge to that island that you see across the way. We want you to help us build it. And this calling is so important. Forgive us, but we're never going to let you leave this island until the bridge is completed. And you stare wide-eyed at them and say, uh, I guess this is my new home for the rest of my life. Because I am never going to be able to build a bridge across to that other island. I can visualize a bridge in my mind, and yes, you're right. In fact, I've even been on bridges that cross places just like this. Across the Chesapeake Bay and the Florida Keys and maybe the Golden Gate. We do have these kinds of bridges, so I can see it, but we'd have to drive pilings into the bedrock at the bottom of the sea 200 feet below the surface of the water. We can't do that. We could never assemble the materials on this island or calculate the physics necessary to build such a bridge. Walking across a bridge is really easy. Building a bridge on your own in this setting, this is impossible. Think on that scene. Let it set in your mind. And let me say this then by way of illustration, as it is no easy task or undertaking to build a bridge, it is immeasurably harder to save a soul from hell. God's global millennia-long effort to rescue sinners from the just penalty of our sin is astoundingly complex. It is a bridge-building effort beyond human capacity. Yet God built a bridge of salvation through the ages. A way of rescue that we could never orchestrate on our own. Think of it, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden... God confronted them. He counseled them. He clothed them. He introduced them to animal sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. And He gave them that promise there in the garden. Genesis 3.15 that one day a Messiah would come to crush Satan's head. Through a particular lineage of people and through a complex work of God, this Savior would come. And in this work, God called eventually Abraham. And He delivered Israel from Egypt. And that was no easy undertaking. It took miracle to get Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He then came down on Mount Sinai and He gave the law to Moses. Israel was exiled 
according to the promise of God for her disobedience. And then Israel, in a new exodus, was brought back into the land. There were the prophets along the way who continued to point to this Messiah who would crush Satan's head. And they put together who that Messiah would be and where He would be born and how He would rule and how He would miraculously raise the dead, cause the blind to see, send the lame leaping. Then came the incarnation of Christ. Think of it. This is 400 feet into the bedrock on the bottom of the ocean hard. The incarnation of Christ. And then the crucifixion of Jesus in fulfillment of all of that prophecy and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We think of it in terms of the book of Romans as we turn here again today in chapter 8 at the end of that passage. As we think of what God has done up in verses 28 and following, verse 29, that He foreknew us and He predestined us and He called us and He justified us and He glorified us. This full orb salvation of grace that God has orchestrated. It is stunning what God has done. It is stunning what has been done to provide salvation for His people through the ages. We could never build this bridge. But walking across the bridge that God built, that's easy. Now the word easy is complicated. And we'll work it out here through our time together But that is in part what Paul is saying in this passage. It's not hard at all. He highlights this salvation historical reality of the hard work that God has done, the miraculous work that God has done, and the call to trust that work for His people. So we're in the context again as we come back to Romans 10 of the Mosaic Law. And we might picture that like working to build a bridge with the materials at hand across this bay in the ocean. We cannot ultimately do it. Now you saw in the text that was read here earlier today the sense that that God says you can do it. In the sense that when He gives His law, He is not asking us in those commands to do anything impossible. And yet because of sin, we find it impossible. We find in who we are by nature that we do not choose to do what God tells us to do. And we choose to do what He tells us not to do. Our nature so bent that way, indwelling sin so directing us that way, it's like we have to build a bridge across this bay and we don't have the capacity. But then, Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of prophecy, to do the work that we could not do. He fulfilled that law. And so in this analogy, He built that bridge. He designed it. He put it there. It takes us from our depravity and our destruction and our condemnation that we deserve justly, and He makes a way into His saving grace. 
The problem was that Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. She saw the bridge-building effort of keeping the law as an end in itself. It was as if we take this, these tribal people on this island and they're there and the command has come to get things ready for the bridge, to do the work that you can do, to figure out what you can do because you've got to get to this other island. And then when the bridge builder finally comes and sets that bridge in place, the Israelites, it was as if they just kept building the bridge. They kept going on in their own effort doing law-keeping as God had commanded them. It was the right thing to want to do that, but they didn't recognize they didn't have the capacity because of sin to actually bridge the distance. And so while Christ came and built that bridge of salvation, Israel just keeps on building and not walking by faith across the bridge. And this is tearing the Apostle Paul up. It hurts him to the core of his being to see the people that God had promised to give Messiah spurn him and say, ah, we're okay. We're okay. We can do this on our own. And so we looked at this in part last week, kind of spilling over into this week and kind of going back and catching that thread and bringing us forward. This tragic warning that Israel has stumbled over Christ in her quest to gain righteousness by law-keeping. This is Paul's burden here in chapter 10 of Romans, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Remember the rumors? That, Paul, you've, you've rejected Israel. You don't have time for Israel anymore. You've turned away from the promises of God. He says, no, no, no. I have a deep abiding love for God's chosen nation. Remember what he said in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. He made that very clear in this place. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of opposition behind that. I, I want you to hear me. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm an Israelite. I love Israel. I love what God has done to call this people to Himself, and I could almost wish myself a curse. If it was possible for me to bear the penalty for them, by God's grace I would. So back to 10.1, that's not the problem. It's not that he's turned away from Israel. His heart's desire is that they would respond. But, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's the problem. Verses 2 and 3 refer to Israel's quest to attain a righteous standing before God by law-keeping. God's law was a beautiful gift to Israel. Keeping God's law was a good thing. God doesn't give you His law and then you say, I'm not going to keep it because I can't. 
It's a good thing to strive to keep the law of God. The problem was that Israel turned her call to obey God's law into a quest to achieve salvation by works. There's a subtle horror there. God speaks His Word, this is what we must do, and we take that Word and say, by obeying it, I can achieve my salvation. Never is that the case. Israel is failing to recognize this. The ultimate tragedy of this we find in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of the law in what sense? How is Jesus the end of the law? His death and resurrection mark the end of the era in which law is the central feature in one's relationship to God. Prior to Christ, we would relate to, God's people related to Him by obeying the law that He had given to them and entrusted to them. But Jesus brings that era to an end. The relationship is now not to obedience to the law, it is that on some level, but it is now in relationship with Christ. It's very personal. There's a relationship with Christ. That is this new era. It's marked by this coming of Christ. Jesus also fulfilled the law in this sense. He was always the law's ultimate goal. He kept God's law perfectly and He provided the salvation our failure to keep God's law required. So let's go back to our picture. It falls apart on a lot of levels, I realize, but it kind of helps us just picture it. This great king commands the islanders to work on a bridge. Obedience is absolutely paramount. They've got to do that. But the king knows that they're never going to actually get it done. They don't have the resources. They don't have the capacity. How on earth did they build a bridge across this span? But he has them set it up, begin the work, start to do it, because they've got to get to the other side, and that's what they must do. Part of what he's doing with this is to test their loyalty. Part of what he's doing with this is to help them so appreciate what happens when the bridge builder comes. They say, we needed to make that span. We were called to make that span. Are we ever glad a bridge builder's come that knows how to do it? And that's Christ. He lived the law perfectly. He bridged the gap perfectly. He built the bridge that human effort could never build. He builds the bridge of salvation, so to speak, and now He invites everyone to cross it. But Israel would not submit to Jesus. She would not cross that bridge and even begrudge those who came to the game late and walked across the bridge because it was there, and they could. Tragically, Israel sought her identity not in the bridge builder, but in the bridge building. She sought her identity in what she could achieve, what she could do, how she could be obedient to God, not in what Christ had done. So ironically, hear this, ironically, Israel failed to achieve the righteousness she sought by law-keeping and failed to receive in Christ the righteousness she could have gained by faith. 
She failed to achieve the righteousness she sought by law-keeping and failed to receive in Christ the righteousness she could have gained by faith. In verses 5-13 through 13, then, Paul grounds his thesis in the Old Testament Scriptures. He highlights the reality that God's saving grace reaches all who trust in Christ alone. And in many respects, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament Scriptures, bore witness to this all along. He begins to dig into that, those texts and to draw out this point. We see then, secondly, that this singular hope that Jews and Gentiles may receive salvation by simple faith in the Gospel. So there is a warning, there is tragedy in some sense with Israel's rejection of God, of Christ, the one who fulfilled the law-keeping. But there is now this hope, this wonderful hope, that both Jews and Gentiles may receive salvation by simple faith in the Gospel. It's a pretty straightforward point, but it's so essential to all that Paul is saying in this book. Notice verse 5, where we find, first of all, in verses 5-10, through 10, two contrasting ways of righteousness. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. There we have the righteousness based on law, very simply. Paul supports his thesis with a reference here to Leviticus 18 and verse 5, where God calls Israel to obey His law. If she obeys... God will protect her and provide her every need. Obedience to God is the way of life for Israel. There will be life in this. His word is light. His word is life. In a dark world, it shines the light. In a world of death, it gives life to Israel. But again, the problem is that Israel, morally, they proved incapable of fulfilling this law. As do you and as do I. When God says, do this, we don't find it natural. When He says, do not do this, there is a lust and a craving to do what God says not to do. We find this very natural. Israel had this experience in her walk with God. So back to our story, by the command of God, Israel had to build the bridge, had to keep the law, but she always failed due to indwelling sin, due to moral incapacity. But by way of contrast, Paul picks up then the righteousness that's based on faith. Notice this in verses 6-10, through there's a contrast with verse 5. Here in verse 5, Israel under the law, the righteousness that's based on the law. By the way, I've got to just jump off the, the... wagon here just for a minute and say hold on that's not saying that they could achieve righteousness by the law but it's to say that that's what righteousness was that's how you gained a right standing with god it included animal sacrifice it included atonement it included all of these rituals god working toward messiah so understanding all of that as we take that phrase there's a righteousness based on the law in contrast verse six but contrast the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down Or who will descend into the abyss? 
That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What on earth is that about? Have you ever read those words and go, what is going on there? Well, you're helped, aren't you, by the reading earlier from Deuteronomy 30. You realize it's just drawing off of Deuteronomy 30. But do you notice here, at least in the ESV translation, do you notice the, the parentheses? I think they're very helpful. Because what he's doing is quoting Deuteronomy 30, but he's applying it now under the new covenant to Christ. So back there in Deuteronomy 30, God exhorts Israel, you do not need to reach into heaven or sail the wide seas to discover what you are supposed to do. My law is on your lips. My law is in your heart. It's right there as plain as day. So now jumping forward in salvation history, Paul applies this passage to our age following the death and the resurrection, the ascension and the reign of Jesus Christ. And what does he say in a sense? You don't need to build the bridge. You need to walk across it. You don't need to figure out how to drive pilings 200 feet below the surface of the ocean. You need to walk across the bridge. So as he puts it specifically, you don't need to go into heaven and pull Jesus down. How impossible that is. But God has done that. He sent him in flesh to earth. You don't need to do that. And you don't need to go down into the realm of death and bring Jesus up from there. How impossible would that be? But God has done it. Jesus lives. He's risen from the dead. He's defeated death. So our salvation was very hard to achieve. It involved incarnation. God taking on human form. That's hard. That's not even bridge building hard. That takes a miracle. And God did it. Our salvation required someone to defeat death. Someone to rise from the dead. That's really hard. That's not bridge building hard. That takes a miracle. And God did that. He did it for you. What do you need to do? You need to believe it. You need to trust it. Verse 8. What does it say? Not pull Christ down from heaven in the incarnation. Not pull Him out of the grave in resurrection. That's been done. But what does it say? The Word is near you. Verse 8. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. As He applies it, now in this side, on this side of the cross, He's saying, that's my message. It's right there. It's graspable by the grace of God. The word of faith that we proclaim, a righteous standing with God based on His gracious gift of the salvation which Christ earned for His people. By the way, there's people that use this phrase, word of faith. If they don't say this, then they're preaching a false gospel. 
There's people that use that phrase, word of faith, that preach a false gospel. Don't follow them. What the word of faith means is not the power of my words to create reality or something along those lines. What the word of faith is, is the message Paul preached. That's what he means here. And don't follow anybody that misuses that phrase. What he's talking about is the righteous standing that we can have with God based on His gracious gift in Christ who has earned our salvation by His death. For those who believe this message of salvation is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. What does Paul mean? Near in what way? In my mouth and heart in what sense? Verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See the word, verse 9, Because... This word of faith that I proclaim, here it is. Here's what it rests on. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's how it's near you. You simply need to confess that Christ is Lord. To believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And with that means, by that means, with the heart you will believe. With the mouth you will confess and be saved. Now don't take this as two steps of salvation. There's a step of what I say and there's a step of what happens in my heart. They're all, it's just pushed together. Uh, it, it's wholehearted trust in Christ's work is what is at issue here. And that wholehearted trust is always expressed in words. It's expressed in deeds as well. He could say a lot of other things, But he just summarizes it this way. There is a confession of the mouth that flows from a heart that wholly trusts what Jesus did in His death and resurrection. So God has done the hard work. The impossible, difficult, life-giving work. Our job is not to build the bridge by our good deeds. Our job is to trust what Jesus did for us. And that is all. And I underline that three times, if you will. That is all. Our calling is simply to walk across the bridge. Our job is to confess who Jesus is and what He has done for you, to rest in that for eternity. Just in that. Our job is to trust that He defeated death. Now, this is no blind leap of faith. Just try to believe this thing. This is trust based in historical reality that Jesus said that He would rise from the dead, that He did rise from the dead, and the fact that He did, we put our hope and our faith in what that resurrection accomplished and how it authenticated the death that He died for His people as atonement. But it is that simple. We do not need to achieve the impossible. Christ did that for us. We need to wholeheartedly trust in this message. 
So in one sense of speaking, there is nothing easier than to confess Christ as Lord and Savior, to put your faith and your trust in what He did. That is so simple. That's what Paul is saying. It's right there. It's right there. It's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's right there in front of you. Just put your trust in Him. But we've got to be cautious, don't we? Don't take that to mean we can ignore the evidences that we have actually trusted Him. Don't take that to mean that it doesn't mean take up your cross and follow Him. It means all of that as well. But what he's really boiling it down to here is what it takes is very simple and straightforward. I mean, you're going to lay down your life. You're going to give it away. You're going to repent of your way and self-idolatry. But what it takes is not building a bridge. It's just walking across it. It's trusting Jesus to convey you to salvation. That's what it is. It's that simple. But again, we don't want to take it to mean that we can ignore the evidences that we've actually trusted Him. And some take it that way. I called on the name of the Lord. God is, He has to save me. I prayed that prayer. We want to not go in that direction. Listen, no verbal confession alone has ever saved anyone. And the proof of that from a gospel-believing church perspective, the proof of that is really pretty clear to us. Because we see people in the name of Christ gathering every Sunday and reciting creeds and confessions. Those creeds and confessions many times are orthodox. They say the right things about Christ. never crosses our mind that those people are saved because they read those things. We recognize and we're very concerned that many put false hope in those creeds and confessions. They're saying the right things with their mouth. But the heart is not in it. Christ has not transformed and saved them. And so you can say the right thing all you want. And we, we should not be critical of those who recite orthodox creeds and confessions and then we put our faith in somebody who prayed a prayer momentarily once upon a time really not a lot of difference there we don't put our hope in the person speaking but in a heart that's been transformed and thus speaks the confession that saves is the kind of confession that wells up from a heart transformed by christ so one who confesses christ as savior is one who pursues a life that is marked by various realities of that confession. Let's not turn confession into a simplistic prayer once, but to say it's a life of confession, ultimately, a confession of the gospel and Christ's lordship to the lost to whom we relate. I confess Christ as my Lord and Savior. That is something that will continue to go on through the remainder of my life. I will continue to profess His name to those who do not know Him and to share this gospel as I'm able, by His grace, to be interested in the spread of that gospel. To confess Christ will mean to stand with Christ against a world that is bent against Him. We don't confess Christ to gain salvation and then join the world's confession the rest of our lives. 
We are forever confessing Christ in a world that is in rebellion against Him. It will mean that what you say about yourself on social media reflects that you are confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Not simply idolizing your own person. The confession of Christ is filtered down into every self-presentation that we make. He is the Lord, not me. Do we say that as we relate to people? Not necessarily with those words, but do we send that message? It's not about me, it's about Him. That's confessing Christ. We confess Christ when we gather around the Lord's table. We say that at this table, He is my Lord and my Savior. I identify with His death and with His resurrection. We're not saved by taking the Lord's Supper but we certainly confess Him as Lord and Savior at the table. We confess Him when we have a Philippians 2 orientation that on the final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's not just that I confessed once upon a time in a simple prayer, but it's that I will confess the rest of my life that Jesus is Lord and one day I will bow before Him and say, You are Lord. In verses 11 to 13, then, Paul argues from the Old Testament that simple faith in God for salvation is consistent with God's plan, a plan that unites Jews and Gentiles. So the two contrasting ways of righteousness, verses 5 through 10, we come now to the one singular message of hope for all, which is Paul's Gospel. Verse 11, For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Quoting Isaiah 28 to the effect that trusting God leads to honor, not to shame. But Paul lays stress here really on the everyone of it. Everyone who believes. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. I think that's really just shorthand for the point he's made in verses 9 and 10, to call on him. Again, not a prayer as such, but the key is a repentant attitude of trust in the Lord and his provision of salvation. All who call on him, all who put their trust and their faith in him. I think it also certainly, you can't help but link this to chapter 8, 28 through 30. He calls us unto salvation. That's the sovereign work of God as we seep in Romans chapter 9 and and the middle section there of Romans chapter 8, we think of the sovereign work of God to choose His people, to draw them to that light. Here's the other side of that. And that is that you call on Him. He calls on you in a sovereign way. No one will ever trust God in their own effort. He must work. He must open our eyes. We belong to Him. It is His sovereign choice ultimately, but we do call on Him. Really. Raise our voice in confession and call on the name of the Lord. And there's no distinction, verse 12 again. 
No distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see there again the emphasis on everyone. Verse 11, the Scripture says everyone. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God bestows His riches on all who walk across the bridge, so to speak. There's an individual application here for every one of us as we respond to the Gospel, but certainly contextually, the emphasis falls on Jews and Gentiles. Everyone, that means Gentiles as well. And that's the explanation for our gathering here today. In light of the promises of God, in light of the work that God has done through the ages to choose Abraham's people, to work out Messiah's lineage through Abraham to bless the nations, you might wonder what we're doing here. But this is the explanation. That bridge has been built and it's been built for all. So back to our illustration, the king knew the islanders on the island and the bridge is for them. That's in a sense Israel. But once the bridge is built, anybody can walk on it. And that's the beauty of grace. And that's the beauty of us being here. We didn't seek the king. We didn't hear the command. Just speaking, we being Gentiles in general through the ages. We didn't know the king. We didn't hear the command. We weren't seeking to get across the bay. We didn't think we needed to. But once that bridge was built, there was an irresistible beauty to it and an invitation from Jesus to take it. And here we are. We've responded in that simple faith. Christ did the miraculous. He did what is impossible for us to do. He accomplished our redemption. He provides it by grace. And we just trust it. We just put our faith in it. And that's enough. And that's all. It's pure grace. But the bridge works for all who will take it. So on the one hand is this cosmic difficulty of achieving the salvation of sinners. And we're still in the middle of it. God's not done working out this plan, is He? He isn't finished yet. God provides this work in the incarnation, in the death, in the resurrection, in the ascension of the reigning Christ. He will bring it to completion at glory in the end. But on the other hand, is the unprecedented simplicity of receiving this salvation by faith. It's that hard. It's that easy. All at once. And it's that stunning. sure you're like me you drive a car across a bridge you walk across a bridge don't think anything of it there's this beautiful walking bridge goes across the ohio river in louisville kentucky and we love walking across that bridge if you've ever been across the bridge it's all lit up and there's music playing and people out there doing all kinds of things it's just a beautiful little place and it goes across long expanse 
I've run across it. I've walked across it. I love that spot. We had a little short time of window where we were in that town a few times, and I never thought about it falling down. I never really concentrated on what did people have to do to put this thing in place, and is it really safe? You just put your whole, complete confidence in it, and you enjoy it. In a sense, that's where we are with Christ. And maybe you particularly, if you have not come to place your saving faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I say to you, it might sound silly, but you might be trying to build that bridge. It's already there. You need to walk on it. If you're trusting your own good works, in fact, let me ask just this way. If somebody said to you, how do you know that you are saved from your sin? How do you know that you will receive in God's presence eternal forgiveness and reception into His domain forever? How do you know that? Does God receive you? Does God accept you? What goes through your mind? If what you're thinking right now is, well, I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, I'm, I'm certainly better than some people, and I'm, I'm trying to be a good Christian, and I've sought to be a good person, if that's where your mind goes, you're trying to build a bridge across a river that's already got the bridge. Don't think in those terms. Your challenge is to call on the name of Jesus Christ alone. To turn from your self-dependent way and to put your trust in Him. Walk the bridge, confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Know that His death atones for sin. It pays the penalty of your sin. And you can put your hope and your trust in what Jesus has done for you and will give to you as a complete gift. And then for the rest of your life, you can celebrate the bridge He laid down, the work that He did, and never have to look at yourself again as the Savior. That is eternally liberating. And I call you there if you are seeking salvation by depending on you. For those of us who have trusted that message, Christian brothers and sisters, is not that bridge solid? It is solid for life and eternity. How could we do anything else but witness to a lost world this saving grace? We've found our way onto this bridge having never sought it as such. Not related to the King as others were. But we've found our way onto this bridge. How do we not point others onto it? How do we not witness this truth to the next generation? How do we not see then the global family of God all sorts and shapes 
and sizes of Gentiles and the remnant of Israel walking the bridge of Jesus Christ crucified and risen together so that around that throne will be people from every nation and tribe and tongue rejoicing in the fact that He let us on the bridge. By His grace alone, we are one in Christ with one another as those in Jesus. And we're drawn together by the stunning wonder of the One who bridged that chasm from our rebellion, from our just condemnation, and gave to us forgiveness and liberation from sin and justification and righteousness and ultimately glory, transformed in spirit and body into the risen likeness of Jesus who defeated death. It's not a story we could even imagine to write out but it's a story too good not to be true. A story of Christ's redeeming grace. So let's rejoice as we leave this place that we have a salvation that is by simple trust in what Christ has done for us. We, once not a people, we alienated from God, have been brought near, redeemed, the children of God, by grace alone. May our hearts surge with joy.